Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Over the past two Sundays, we've read the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, seeing how Christians can become healthy, fruitful, and mature trees in terms of our faith. Chapter 1 told us that we must be deeply rooted in the knowledge of who Jesus is and the knowledge of who we are. And as we saw in chapter 2, this knowledge can help us avoid falling prey to false teachers who peddle plausible arguments, empty philosophies, and bizarre practices that can undermine the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. So rather than looking to things other than Jesus, believers must keep walking in Christ, rooted, built up, and established in our faith if we want to be healthy trees for God's glory. Because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus. And if he already has everything we need, why would we need to go anywhere else? But today we continue on to Colossians 3. And we're going to get away a little bit from our rooted metaphor. Instead, I'd like you to think back to something we discussed briefly in chapter 1. We mentioned both the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is a statement of fact or reality. In Paul's writings, the indicative is who we are in Christ. It's what is objectively true about us because of who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf in his life, death, and resurrection. That's the indicative. The imperative contains the demands placed upon us as a result of our identity in Christ. The imperative features the commands that we obey because of who Christ is and what he has done. And this morning we'll see that both things, the indicative and the imperative, matter greatly. Because in the same way that a deeply rooted tree bears good fruit, deeply rooted Christians live godly lives. So open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. I pray that you would watch over us as we read your word. I pray that you'd be with me as I preach your word. Help my voice hold out for the next 28 or so minutes. Uh, I pray that it wouldn't be a distraction to me or anybody else. Thank you that you can speak clearly through your word, even through imperfect vessels like me, like other preachers, like our elders, like any of us. We are imperfect vessels, but thank you that your word gives us inspired, authoritative, perfect guidance. Lord, help us submit to your word, not just this morning, but every time we open your word. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in it. 
And one of the best things that you've revealed to us in your word is that you are our father. We were all once orphans because of sin. But you have grafted us into your vine. You have welcomed us into your church. You have reconciled us to you. And we are now part of your family. Thank you for good fathers. Thank you for the privilege of being a father for those of us in this room who have that privilege. I pray for those who have a difficult time with Father's Day. But Lord, we lift up these words to you with gratitude that we can call you our father. Remind us of that today, if nothing else. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave. Thank you for your spirit who lives within us if we believe in you. And Lord, I pray that you would watch over us as we listen to your word. Thank you for this church, this place, these people, this time we have together. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If you're not big into grammar, if you're still confused about that whole indicative and imperative thing, I've got good news for you. You just read the first one. Verses 1 through 4 stress the indicative, the objective reality of who we are in Christ. Look back at how verse 1 begins. If then you have been raised with Christ. Some translations say, since you have been raised with Christ. As we saw in chapter 1, Paul considers the Colossian Christians his siblings in the faith. He calls them titles like saints and heirs. And if you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus, you fall into those same categories. You too are a child of God and a brother or sister to the Christians around you. You too are a saint. You too are an heir. That's the indicative. But in addition to being raised with Christ, Paul, somewhat ironically, when you think about it, says that we have died in verse 3. What does he mean by that? In Romans 6, Paul compares baptism to being dead, buried, and raised to new life. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. In short, someone who has been raised with Christ, a.k.a. every believer in Jesus, has died to him or herself. We've been given a new life. A new identity in Christ. 
And then Paul adds in verse 4 that we will appear with him in glory. We have a new identity now. And as a result of that, we also have a new future to look forward to. We have a new destiny secured for us. And that future does not consist of wrath, separation from God, or hell. It consists of glory in Christ's presence. When Christ returns, we will truly experience all the benefits, all the rewards, all the glory of being one with him by faith. So that, verses 1 through 4, is the indicative in all its beauty and all its wonder. It's the objective statement of fact concerning who believers are as a result of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. And it's all a product of God's grace, kindness, and mercy. And we can never hear those statements enough. Okay, then. What now? What does this new identity lead to? One theologian puts it this way. Since Christ's people share his risen life, their interests are now centered in him. His interests, in fact, become theirs. They must therefore pursue those things which belong to the heavenly realm where he reigns. Their mind, their attitude, their ambition, their whole outlook must be characterized by their living bond with the ascended Christ. In other words, everything revolves around Jesus, like we've said the past two Sundays. Our new identity as believers in Jesus comes with responsibilities, priorities, changes. It comes with commands we must obey, expectations we must uphold. The indicative leads to the imperative. Who we are in Christ, by God's grace, is the basis of both what we must do as well as what we must not do. You know, we mentioned in week one that Colossae was a city past its prime. It wasn't nearly as respected or prestigious as it had been decades earlier. But there was one thing that the Colossians still did quite well. The city was known for its contributions to the textile industry. They were in the business of clothing, especially high-quality wool, along with bright colorful, and hard-to-find dyes. You might say that the Colossians were a player in the fashion industry of the ancient world. And Paul seems to lean on that imagery in this chapter. He speaks of sin as old clothes that we must take off, and of righteousness as new clothes that we must put on. So, continuing in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, 
evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Everything revolves around Jesus. So Paul begins with these negative commands. This is the stuff that those who have been raised with Christ must stop doing. These are the old clothes that we must take off. For the believer in Jesus, sin, like a favorite t-shirt we used to wear all the time and were quite comfortable in, has gone out of style. Whether those sins are mostly internal, like the ones mentioned in verse 5, or mostly external, like the ones listed in verses 8 and 9, or whether they're the social and communal sins alluded to in verse 11, the point is this. If you are in Christ, sin is so last year. Like, you. Why would you even wear that? Remember verses 1 through 4. You have a new identity. Those old rags don't fit you anymore. They're not appropriate for a saint, an heir, and a child of God such as yourself. As someone deeply rooted in Christ, there are old actions, attitudes, habits, desires, and priorities that you must take off. Don't even bury them in the back of the closet. Burn them. Put them to death, as Paul says in verse 5. But then look at verse 12. It's not all negative. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we got the don'ts in verses 5 through 11. Paul gives us the do's in verses 12 through 17. 
The first section was negative, but this section is positive. The first section told us which clothes we should take off. The second tells us which clothes to put on. In Christ, we have been given an extreme makeover. We've been blessed with a whole new wardrobe. And this one consists of styles much more appropriate to our new identity. There are new attitudes to adopt, like the ones listed in verses 12 and 13. Verse 14 includes love, which is the little black dress of godly living. It's always in style. Verses 15 through 17 show us the staples of our new look that are always in season. Versatile articles like peace, thankfulness, and the word of Christ. Paul tells us that if we are deeply rooted in Jesus, it's time to start looking like it. It's time to start living like it. It's time to start dressing the part. So there you have it, the indicative and the imperative. The first is found in verses 1 through 4. The second is found in verses 5 through 17. We have been raised with Christ. We have died to our old selves. We look forward to glory. These are wonderful statements of fact that we cling to. But what do we do now? Well, we start acting like it. We put off sin and put on righteousness. These are the commands we must obey. There's that old saying, dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Similarly, live in accordance with your identity in Christ And the future glory that is secured for you. Not your identity in this fallen world. And the sins that you struggled with in the past. And are still tempted to entertain in the present. The indicative and the imperative may be summed up in this simple statement. Be who you are. Be who you are. Now, as we wrap up, here are just a few practical takeaways for us to consider. First, it's incredibly important that we keep the indicative and the imperative in the right order. Why? Well, because if we reverse the two, if we base our identity in Christ on what we do, rather than basing what we do on our identity in Christ, we will become legalistic. We will start to believe that we earn our good standing with God through our actions, rather than receiving it as a gift of God's grace. We will find ourselves working really hard to gain or maintain God's approval by our own works, rather than resting and rejoicing in Christ's works. We follow the commands of Scripture because we love God. We do not follow the commands of Scripture to make God love us. 
The indicative and the imperative are both crucial to being healthy trees in terms of our faith. But it's incredibly important that we keep them in the right order, in their proper place. Second, and to some degree the other side of that coin, people who have been raised with Christ must still recognize the very real responsibilities that we have. There are no less than nine commands and prohibitions, do's and don'ts, listed in the verses that we read this morning. Nine of them. Now, as we just said, we don't want to become legalists, convinced that keeping the rules and jumping through the hoops is what gains or maintains our good standing with God. But we also don't want to go to the other extreme and become antinomians. That's a word that means opposed to the law or instead of the law. We don't want to assume that God's grace means that we can just keep living the same old sinful life we've always lived, ignoring his commands. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously called this cheap grace. He wrote, Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Bonhoeffer goes on to argue that true grace, or as he calls it, Costly grace calls us to follow Jesus Christ. You might say that cheap grace loves the indicative, but ignores the imperative. And because of that, it produces shallow, weak, and fruitless trees. May we appreciate both. A healthy tree produces fruit, and a healthy Christian produces godliness. God loves us too much, and God is simply too holy to let us continue living the same old way we lived before we met Jesus. Don't get me wrong, we embrace and we celebrate the indicative, but we cannot ignore the imperative. Third and finally, where the rubber meets the road, how do we do this? Is this putting off and putting on a mere matter of blood, sweat, tears, and strength of will? Because if it is, we're all in a lot of trouble, aren't we? As scripture and history tells us, human beings are not very good at fixing our problems, strengthening our weaknesses. And curbing our vices on our own. Well, thankfully, God's given us his word to direct us. He's given us his people, the church, 
to encourage us, teach us, and hold us accountable. And he's given us his spirit to change our hearts and minds so that we can change our words and deeds. And if you want something really practical, look again at verse 17, a verse we're tempted to overlook. When you're unsure of whether a certain action, thought, or feeling is sinful and out of style, or righteous and fitting of your new identity in Christ, ask yourself this question. Can I act, think, or feel this way in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him? Now, that won't solve every ethical dilemma you encounter as a Christian. But if nothing else, it's a good starting point. Here's a hard truth. If you don't like being told what to do or what not to do, following Jesus is going to be hard for you. Of course, the truth is that none of us is particularly fond of being told what to do or what not to do. After all, we are descendants of Adam and Eve, the first people to rebel against God. But by God's grace, we can be forgiven, reconciled, and even transformed. We can be renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. We can become the people God made us to be. Children, servants, and worshipers who will love and enjoy him forever. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 told us that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son. If that's true, it's time to start living like it. This deliverance and transfer. This new, internal, objective identity we have in Christ must lead to visible and external godliness. By God's grace, may we learn to live in accordance with our righteous standing before the Lord. May we put off the old and put on the new. May we dress the part of people who have been and will be raised with Christ. May we, as deeply rooted trees, produce fruit for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And thank you for the challenge of Colossians 3. There are commands to obey. There are do's and don'ts to listen to and follow. There are things to start doing and things to stop doing. But as challenging as Colossians 3 can be, remind us that there is also great promise here. There is great hope. The fact that you give us these commands shows that you believe we can do these things by your grace, by your power, by your spirit. You call us to do these things and to not do these things 
because you empower us to do these things and not do these things. Thank you that we've been given a new identity in Christ, that our reality has changed. Our status has changed. We've been rescued, delivered, transferred from one status to a new status, and that's reconciliation with you. But Lord, I also pray that it wouldn't stop there, that you would continue your work of transforming us, teaching us to be holy as you are holy, so that others might see our good works and glorify you. Help us avoid the ditch on either side of the indicative and the imperative. We don't want to get to the point of following rules because we think we have to make you love us. That's not the point. But we also don't want to ignore your commands, which you've given us for our good. Lord, help us walk that line well and become fruitful trees. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that by your grace, by your power, by your goodness, we have this new identity that is only given to us in Christ. We are not orphans, we're children. We are not rebels, but we're servants. And that's secured for us by the death and resurrection of Christ. And so now, by the power of your spirit, help us live in this reality. Help us be who we are. Help us be the saints you say we are. For your glory. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. It's true.
That concludes our service for this morning. Again, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to me hoarsely try to preach. And I was thinking earlier this week as my voice started to go out, you know, I'm using this style and fashion imagery and my voice is going out. And so what better time than now to quote the former spokesman of Men's Warehouse? You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. There is life in this transformation that God gives us by the power of his spirit, by the power of his word. Uh, We embrace the indicative. We praise God day by day, hour by hour, that we are raised with Christ, that we are his children, that we are bought by the body and blood of Christ, that our sins are forgiven. But that leads to the imperative. That leads to the transformation, the sanctification that God gives us by the power of the Spirit. So may we as God's people go out and show that transformation to the world. Show that there is a better way of thinking, a better way of feeling, a better way of living than so much of what the world has to offer. But that better way of living is found in Christ. It finds its basis in Christ. But with that, we'll close our service again Happy Father's Day. Uh, If you are a father, we have our annual gift for you. Uh, But you might notice that we have less dad's root beer than we have in years past. Dad's root beer is getting increasingly more difficult to find across Indianapolis. And I only have so much time to be looking for root beer. So we have some dad's root beer, and the rest is supplemented by a couple of my personal favorites. So if you're a dad, grab a dad's root beer or a cheer wine. When you're on your way out of ten, when you're on your way out of church. So with that, I will close our service in prayer. Again, thanks for being here with us today. Father, again, thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for our new identity that you have graciously given us. And Lord, by your grace, I pray that we would live in that identity, that we would be who we are that we would glorify you with our words and our deeds, our do's and our don'ts, so that you might be praised in this world. I pray that you would slowly but surely transform us. Inevitably, there are starts and stops and ups and downs as we learn to live out our calling. But thank you for your mercy, your patience, your kindness, and your generosity to keep working on us, to keep tending us and pruning us, to help us be the fruitful trees you call us to be. I ask that you watch over us as we go on about our days. Thank you for Father's Day. Thank you for the fathers in the room that we get to celebrate and honor. Thank you that you are our eternal Father. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Enjoy your Sunday.